Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship, and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here, as always, with Father Stephen Gautier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Father Stephen, um, a lot of times in the prayer book and in the Anglican liturgy um, in uh, the Psalter, you'll see um, little Latin phrases here and there, um, which uh, I guess makes a lot of sense because, uh, you know, the, the, the Church of England uh, before the Reformation, um, it worshipped in Latin, just like uh, the rest of the, the Universal Church did at the time. In the West. Or the Western Church. Yep, yeah, in, the, in the West. Um, but once in a while, you'll see a Greek term. Um, there's a few Greek terms that are used in in our liturgy, sometimes in, uh, in scripture study. Um, so let's go over those terms and what exactly they mean, starting maybe with the one I just used, which is liturgy, <laughs> not a Latin word. Um, so what does liturgy mean? Well, that's really a good, uh, uh, a good point. Actually, the best description of liturgy is found in the title of our prayer book, the book of common prayer. It's a term we use to describe public, public worship. And actually it's the term we use in the Greek Bible in the Greek translation of the old Testament to describe worship with the, among the Jews. The worship is described as liturgia. Now what it comes from is a root which means it has the root for people and work. So sometimes people say the work of the people. Mm. But that has two different meanings, and it's important we understand both of them. One, a lot of people like to say it's something we all do together. It's our common work together. There's an element of truth to that. However, the most common use of this term in actual ancient Greek is, you know when you sometimes go on the highway and everything's torn up and they'll say, your tax dollars at work? Yeah. <laughs> and we call that public works, like the Department of Public Works? Yep. Yep. That was the most common uh, use of the term in ancient Greek. Ah, uh, for example, they had something, vergetism meant in ancient Greece that if you're a rich guy, you were expected to donate buildings and things or put on games and the like. And so when you did, when you did something like this big project for the public good, it would be called you know, a public work. It would be, you know, it'd be about liturgy. And so in a sense, it's also done for the good of the people, something we do together. And it's also for the good of the people of God. You know, it's, you know, it's the work for the people. But uh, it describes basically our um, public prayer. You know, it's, uh, you know, how do we pray as church? And there are three elements to liturgy that way. First is the key is our celebration of the Lord's Supper. You know, we call it the Eucharist. That's the, that, matter of fact, in the Eastern church, that's how they use the word liturgy. The holy liturgy means the communion service. Right, right. That's yeah. what liturgy means in the Eastern usage. We also say it describes our daily offices morning prayer, evening prayer, compline, because they're what we do is the official prayer of the church. When we pray that, we're praying the church's prayer as church. It's not just a private prayer, it's the church's prayer as church. Mm. And also the administration of the sacraments. You know, if whenever we have a sacrament or sacramental rite, you know, if we have, uh, for example, the, um, uh, if we have baptism apart from a Eucharist, you know, something that would be a liturgical rite, it's still yeah. a public rite of the church. So again, liturgy basically is the people's work in those two senses. It's something we do together. We're, we're coming to work when we come to, to liturgy. We're to worship the living God. 
I love the term we talk about divine service. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. we're here to work. We're coming to work. We're, you know, not it's to, a job. To be entertained. Yeah. It's a job. We're, we're on coming the job. <laughs> we're on the job. But also it means something God's doing for us. Hmm. Yeah. It's a beautiful work from God for us. So I think that the richness of that meaning is important. So it, uh, liturgy is a Greek term which really came into popularity in very recent times, in the last 100, 100 years or so. It's become popular in the West. We just talk about worship and things typically before that rather than liturgy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at least in modern usage, liturgy is like, um, it's like uh, old-timey worship. It was kind of had a had a bit of a comeback. <laughs> yeah. And for a lot of people, they think of liturgy as simply the fact that we use a structure for how we worship. Yes. So that's a, that's a popular meaning of the term liturgical, but in a religious sense, that's not liturgy. For example, we can have all sorts of things we do that are not the official prayer of the church. For example, Stations of the Cross are beautiful. We have those on Good Friday. I heard your church had it for the first time, right? Yes, yes. Uh, Redemption had not done a Good Friday service. So we, no, we did a full Good Friday service on Good okay. Friday. We did a, a, a Stations of the Cross um, performance uh, on Saturday. Um, so yeah. But the difference there would be it's something we were doing as a church, but it wouldn't be liturgy. Right. In this way, technically speaking, liturgy is the official prayer of the whole church. Yeah. You know, our sacramental life, things that we do as devotionally together are beautiful things, but they're not part of our liturgy. Right, right. It's the official public worship of the church mm. built around the, 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 uh, our sacramental life. Right. So let's talk about Eucharist, which, you know, as you say, you know, the Sunday service in, in, um, in the Book of Common Prayer is called, you know, the Holy Eucharist, the whole thing from beginning to end, from, you know, opening, opening him to the sermon to communion at the end is, 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 is the, is the Holy Eucharist. But let's talk about that, that word Eucharist. Um, and, and what is it exactly referring to? Well, this is really uh, interesting Eucharist, uh, because there are three ways that we can describe what we do with the bread and the wine and our giving thanks. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians as the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. He says it negatively so when he's criticizing how they're performing it. He says, you know, what you're doing isn't the Lord's Supper. It's, you know, but he's, that yeah. clearly was a term to describe it, the Lord's Supper. Yeah. That's a good biblical term. So many of our evangelical churches talk that. That's a great term. Yeah, indeed. Another term is when he says what's going on, he says, you know, is it not a participation in the, you know, the, the, when we, the bread that we eat, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Hmm. The cup that we drink, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That's koinonia, which we get communion from. Hmm. And so that's where the term is, a, again, so it's a very Bible term to use this. So what about Eucharist? And why do we not use those terms? Why has Eucharist become the really popular term? Right. Well, here's why. Is First of all, remember there are four verbs we've talked about. We talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Gospels say he took the bread... He gave thanks, he broke, and he gave it to them, right? Those are the four classic verbs. We call it the shape of the Eucharist is what Gregory Dix, uh, you know, a great uh, uh, liturgical writer of the 19th century, said the, the shape of the Eucharist. Yeah. Took, 20th century. Gave right. thanks. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, day 20th, yes. Uh, broke and gave. And so here, the early church loved to use this term. This was the preferred term that was actually used in the church fathers. So Eucharist comes from the Greek verb meaning to give thanks. Hmm. It means to give thanks. Now, why did they like this as a point to, um, you know, to to communion or Lord's Supper? Because it really decides what we were actually doing. 
at the very heart of the Lord's Supper is giving thanks. Hmm. He took the bread, he gave thanks. He took the cup, you know, he gave thanks. So they love the fact, and the trouble with communion is often we'd use that to describe the product of this. It's more like, you know, we produced, you know, somehow we produced Holy Communion, but it's the actual action of giving thanks is the Eucharist. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. also Greek allows us to do something that made this a very popular term if you're writing in Greek. In Greek and Latin, you can turn virtually anything into a, into a, into a noun. Right. You know, uh, and so what they did is you can actually take the fourth, what we call a past participle, you know, eaten, broken, that kind of things. Mm -hmm. You can turn that into a noun. So Eucharistia means things over which you've given thanks. Isn't that amazing? What a language. In English, we'd have to say, you know, the things I gave thanks over. The things, yeah. (laughs) In Greek, you say Eucharistia means that. If Eucharistia means to give thanks, Eucharistia means having given thanks for yeah. And it's a noun, yeah. things you've given thanks for. And so it was perfect because it could describe the action to give thanks. And it could describe the product of that action, the bread and the wine for which we had given thanks. Mm. So mm. the church fathers loved that term because it talked about both the action and really fit in with the product of that action. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Today, I'd, I'd hazard to say that if, you know, in in modern usage, if you're talking about Eucharist or if you're pastor or your priest says Eucharist, it's probably more of an indication of kind of the level of churchmanship. <laughs> you know, if you're Yes, it certainly <laughs> is. If you're having Eucharist, then you're at a higher, you know, more more Catholicly leaning thing. Um but if you're talking about Lord's Supper, you're at a evangelical uh church and holy communion or or just communion is probably somewhere in between. <laughs> That's true. And yeah. the, the Greek terms in all these things became much more popular in the 20th century. Mm, mm, yeah. You, everyone talked about communion. Eucharist in my lifetime became a much more popular term uh, starting in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. It's trying to say, I want a fresh take on this. Communion, everybody has this. Let's give a, take the Greek word, it'll give us a fresh take. Because we all, the Latin terms everybody used for everything. Sure, sure. Communio is a Latin term. Yeah. Well, okay, well, let's talk about, this is a word that you hear sometimes um, when you're studying the Bible, um, and it usually refers to like a chunk of text, um, but it's a pericope. Um, that that word pericope, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I feel like I started to hear it more when I was in grad school, um, but it, I came to learn it meant roughly the same thing as just, you know, in church, what you might call the passage of scripture. Um, so w- what's that word pericope? W- where does it come from? Who's using it and why? Okay. Well, that's a, again, a very recent term for widespread use. It used to be a, sem- just a way to show people you went to seminary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because yeah. we, yeah, basically what regular people would say is the epistle, the, the, the epistle reading or the gospel reading right, is what people right. said, or the lesson. Growing up for me in the Baptist church, it was always the passage, the passage of yeah, scripture. The, yeah. But here's what it kind of needs. It's a Greek term was for an excerpt from a book. Whenever you took a passage from a book you would quote, it was called a pericope. And I love where it comes from. If you study any Greek, think about peri means go around, right? Right, right. Like, like a periscope, yeah. it goes around, etc. Well, think of copain is to cut. Mm-hmm. So if you cut around, it's like cutting out a piece of a book, a paragraph out of a book. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like cutting and pasting. It's yeah. like the idea of it just cutting and pasting. We just cut it out and use it. It's like the English word snippet. Yeah, <laughs> snippet. That's yeah, where yeah, snippet yeah, comes. Yep. It's to snip out. We call it a snippet. We have a here's a snippet. You know, a part you cut out. Yeah, and that's literally what it means. It's a snippet, 
And it simply describes a lead, reading in the lectionary. Uh-huh. You know, we have an official readings that we have on Sundays, and they say, which what is the pericope for mm-hmm. this Sunday, the mm-hmm. gospel pericope? But it was just a way that you know immediately. Uh, a very common term for Anglicans used to be lesson, and that comes from lectio, which is simply Latin for reading. Right, right, right. And lectio in Latin in French becomes leçon, which means for reading. Lire, you know, leçon, a reading. Yeah. Okay, and so, uh, you know, we call it a lesson or a reading, but pericope is just, um, if you go on to div school, but they use it all the time, talk about this pericope, and it's a very common term, and it's growing in yeah. usage. Yeah, if if uh, if you are talking to someone about the Bible and, and you find yourself talking about pericopes, you know you've gotten into a... Uh, a very technical debate. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And it's spelled P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. And remember, the it's the last. It's, it's, it's pericope. Yeah. yeah. Pericope. Okay. Uh, not, not, a, not a pericope. Right. Not a pericope. <laughs> now, even if you're a French speaker, in French, the word is pronounced pericope. You know, so uh-huh. if you uh-huh. come in, you know, I had to learn it was pericope. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not pericope, pericope. You know, pericope in English, which is the real Greek way of saying it. Yeah. Boy, what are you talking about? pericope we say pericope over here yeah so yeah (laughs) all right well let's talk about okay this is you know as a priest this one comes up a lot um the homily um instead of sermon um and i guess in in contemporary usage the meaning seems to be a homily is just short and probably given by someone in a robe Whereas a sermon is like, you know, a four or five point sermon, you know, on, on a given text and it could last like 40 minutes or something like that. But that's probably not what the term means. Well, actually, no, people didn't use the word homily again until pretty recently, relatively. We used to talk about sermons. And sermon comes a good Latin word. Sermo is a word. One of the Latin words for word. There are several. Mm. And that's one of them is a sermo word, you know, like, which became a talk. Now in Greek, what you have is also the term homileia is a is a term for a um, a talk to a group, and it comes from the Greek word for crowd. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, something you say to a crowd is a homily. So why? Do, what's the difference? Is the reason they took in the Greek term is what used to happen before the uh, the liturgical reforms is very often people used to just sort of speak on topics that weren't very related to the church to the to the readings we're using that Sunday. Uh, so you yeah, might yeah. go and you had you hear you have the readings, your gospel, your epistle, and they're talking about like the prodigal son, and suddenly somehow we start talking about some theological topic. Yeah, yeah. You know, let's talk about you know and fill in the blank. You know, um, that's not necessarily related. Right. And so it came to distinguish between moral topics when we're talking or about theological topics. Let's talk about grace or something, as opposed to actually giving an exegesis of a passage of actually preaching a passage. Okay. So in modern uses, homily means this is really about the passage. We're actually going, we are going to draw lessons from it, but it's primarily rooted in the passage. Okay. Yeah. Whereas a sermon, uh, it came to be used more generally of anything we say at church. Right. Right. You know, in that, in that space, which might be a just, this is a time for us to talk about this teaching of the church or something, even though it's not really the main theme of right. the readings we have that day. Okay. So it's kind of the opposite. It's, um, homily is focused on the the text and sermon is more thematic right yeah yeah okay well let's talk about another one that you hear really only in the context of anglican or catholic or roman or um, eastern orthodox eucharist it's epiclesis yes Um, so 
that's uh that's something that you'll um i don't think it's specifically labeled in the prayer book but you'll hear people talk about the the epiclesis in the eucharist uh, sometimes priests you know what do you do at the epiclesis <laughs> so yes, what is that uh, what's well, important part of the eucharistic prayer the, you know the great thanksgiving the eucharistic prayer and we say, send your spirit upon these gifts to make them for us, the body and blood of your son. Words to that effect. You know, send your spirit. It's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it literally comes from epiclesis. Epi means come, you know, to call down. You know, epiclesis is to call. And epi, to call down. You're calling down the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, on this, you send your Holy Spirit on these gifts. Yeah. And so it's uh, typically, uh, so that part of the Eucharist where we say that, we always have a prayer to the Holy Spirit over the gifts. And that's calling the prayer, calling down the Holy Spirit. Like with, uh, remember in Elijah, when he calls down the fire, said, you know, send your fire on these, you know, hmm. you know, on these gifts, you know, to show who the true God is. Send your spirit on these gifts. Yeah, yeah. And that's called the epiclesis. It's very important in the Eastern Church because the Eastern Church holds that that is the magic moments, uh, so to speak. Uh, I shouldn't say magic. I don't mean it that <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, no, but, I get uh, what you mean. Uh, but it's the special moment where, you know, the deed is done. Hmm. Whereas hmm. in the West, we've emphasized the words of institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the words of institution. Matter of fact, in the West, what we often had is sort of different is we'd often have the epiclesis ahead of the words of institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Catholics would, would, in seminary, would joke and call that the landing lights. Yeah. <laughs> You're saying, you know, to so the Holy Spirit. Now, in a moment when I mention the word, send, you know, this is my body, be ready. You know, send your spirit. Whereas it, we tend to have it afterwards. You know, yeah. Eastern ways to have it after those words. Um, yeah, the Eastern Church is kind of responsible probably for getting the epiclesis back into the West, right? Like we, yes. we kind of didn't really have one for a while. And then well, we had one, but it was weak. You had to know where to look. I see. <laughs> okay. It was an anticipatory epiclesis in the traditional Roman, uh, Roman yeah. Eucharistic prayer. But certainly one of the things that hit the reformers when they started looking at Eastern liturgies was the important, the Eastern church has always placed a lot of emphasis on what they call pneumatology, the, the mm-hmm. work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And they emphasize in every sacrament, it's the Holy Spirit is how God works through his Holy Spirit. Yeah. And this is the point in the prayer where you'll probably see the priest, you know, I'll, uh, I'll kind of put my hands, uh, facing the elements just to kind of indicate you know this is this is this point in the prayer where we're specifically asking for for the holy spirit to to um be operative here uh, but it's other people same. do different things i think in some in some churches people will the priest will make kind of a cross with his forearms or something like that there's, there's different different kind of things sometimes there's a a, a little bell that's rung um so yeah it's just a, an important moment there's always a hand gesture. The idea is like an ordination. You put your hands on someone's heads to call the Holy Spirit down to ordain yeah. them. You yeah. know, say, your Holy Spirit, we ask you know, the gift. In, in a confirmation, we pray for a gift of the Holy Spirit, we pray. So the idea of the hands, whatever it is, too, is that we're asking for the Holy Spirit, like an ordination, to come down and do his work. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so th- this is a word that you don't hear that often, but it's also in the, in the context of the Eucharistic prayer. Um, and it's anamnesis. Um, I actually first heard the term by, you know, when I, again, when I was in grad school, there was kind of some literary types and I think it was like the name of a blog or something like that. Anamnesis and remember it meant like remembering or something like that. So, well, they use it in literature. It's a literary term. 
as well, like an aphora is a literary term and also a religious term. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both Greek terms. Yeah, but anamnesis means, uh, is a term for remembering, reminiscing, yeah. remembering. Yeah. It literally comes from a root meaning to call to mind. It's where it comes hmm. to, to call to mind. And here's the thing, when we actually remember the, the Eucharistic prayer is a, is a prayer to the Father. So we say, and we quote Jesus in the prayer, we say, Father, you know, he told us to do this in remembrance of him. But we're just saying what we're supposed to do. When do we actually do it? And so the next thing typically we have in the Eucharistic prayer, it'll say, Lord, now, rem- now we, okay, remembering his death and resurrection, you know, we go on for there. And so when we actually use those words, and now remembering his death and resurrection, mm-hmm. that is called the anamnesis. It's one of the elements that basically in the Eucharistic prayer, you start out by thanking the Father for the gift of the Son. Yeah, yeah. You start there. You have the uh, institution narrative. You have the anamnesis where you say, now remembering, as you told us, now we're right now, we're, we're remembering his death. We have the anaphora, which is, you know, receive these gifts. And then we have the epiclesis, send your spirit upon these gifts to make them for us, the body and blood of your son. Yeah. So yeah. anamnesis is the words we say, remembering now his death and resurrection. And okay. sometimes at a really big event, we might say, and his ascension, glorious ascension. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that, that, that's cool to point that out because you know in the especially in you know diff with different ideas of what's what's going on and what the eucharist or what holy communion really is you know there's some people who really want to just say that it's um it's it's only kind of a memorial or a remembrance um and i think with 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 those folks i'm really happy to say well it it's not only that but it certainly is that <laughs> you know the the anamnesis in there is that it, it certainly is doing that you know there's there's more going on you know there's also an epiclesis uh but there's also an anamnesis this is this is a this is a memorial but it's not only a memorial and again remor- this ties together because again as we've mentioned in the old testament and things the term remember is a very different term in the Bible. Right, it's much richer, yeah. Much richer because it often means to make something happen. God remembered Sarah. You yeah. Know, God remembered it. It means he takes action on a past promise. Right. It right. means making making present what had been past. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, I promise this, but here's when it happens now. This right. is, this is we're completing. This is a complete idea of that. And that's these remembrance here. We're actually going to make this happen. You know, remember, we're now in remembrance. Right, so this, yeah, this is active thing not not just a kind of intellective thing yeah and that's why it immediately follows with the anamnesis send your spirit now to make this happen Okay, so let's talk about this this one, uh, Kyrie. Um, I first heard this term in context of music. It's actually the 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 beautiful music that's um, that we're we're we were given permission by uh, GIA Publications um, and uh, the the late great Richard Prue. I first um, started listening to it. Just my dad, I think, picked it up in a Catholic bookstore. It's called Sublime Chant. And uh, when I was maybe 14, 15, I just started... It's amazing. Yeah, it's the most beautiful Gregorian, Gallican, Ambrosian chant I've ever heard. And But it, that the very first track is a Kyrie. You know, I'll, I'll make sure and be playing it on this episode. 
but it just brings me to tears every time I hear it. And I realized, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I was a Baptist kid. I didn't know anything about liturgical music. And I realized, oh, this word Kyrie, I keep hearing it in this music that I just find so beautiful, but it's often to different tunes. Um, so this is clearly a set phrase, a set thing um, that is uh, put into the, the liturgy often to music. So what does Kyrie mean? What's it doing? Well, it's actually, remember the church in the Western church, our liturgy at Rome was originally in Greek because most Christians in Rome actually spoke Greek as their mother tongue or they mm -hmm. had a second language, the one language everybody could speak at the Roman church. So until the early 200s, uh, the, the language of the Roman church was Greek mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in liturgy. And this is the only line of Greek that remains. And it was Kyrie means Lord. Curiosus, Lord, but Kyrie, in, in Latin and Greek, when you talk to somebody directly, you change it to show you're talking to them. For example, yeah. my name in Latin is Stephanus, but if you're talking, you say Stephane. They call it vocative. Uh. You know, you do that. So Kyrie means Lord, and it's eleison means have mercy. And, you know, and they'd have Kyrie eleison, Christe, Christ, have mercy, eleison, Kyrie eleison. This actually has an interesting history part of it. Is people have argued about this, but I think this is right. Jungmann in his famous uh, uh, book on the history of the Western liturgy. You know, if you go to an Eastern liturgy, they start out with a litany. Yeah. And how it works is you have prayers. Is the deacon say, "Let's pray for so and so." We pray for all those in authority, etc. And then you have the you the, you reply and you make it your prayer. It's like a collect, you know, Kyrie eleison. Yeah. And so what had happened in the Western Church? We used to have a litany like that, according to Jungmann. However. When the liturgy kept getting bigger, liturgies are like attics sometimes. You keep putting <laughs> stuff in them, and yeah. normally liturgical reform, you just have to cut back and you get some space so you can walk around. Right. So they said it was too long, and they had to shorten it. But So what they did is they got rid of the prayers and just kept the curie. Huh, okay. So instead of saying, let's pray now for, you know, oh, you know like, Lord have mercy, they would simply have curie eleison, Christi eleison, curie eleison. And so people came to see this as sort of a, a rite of penance. Hmm. But it didn't start out that way. Interesting. Yeah. But but they would say it was basically how we was sort of like a, a prayer for forgiveness, you know, from the very beginning of putting ourselves humbly before God. Yeah. So we typically use it in the church, um, you know, um, uh, especially in seasons of penance, like uh, you know, in Lent and sometimes like in um, in Advent. Yeah. You know, the Kyrie yeah. early in the service. But that's what it comes. It means Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. By the way, historically, it sounds Trinitarian. It's actually not. Originally, Kyrieles and Christieles and Kyrieles and all referred to Christ. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> it's not referring to each member of the Trinity. They all were referring to Christ. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, let's talk about Trisagion. And that one, um, you know, it's a, again, another for me, I became aware of it as a musical thing. Um, uh, Fernando Ortega has a really beautiful setting of it um, that we actually um, perform in Lent. Uh, at our church. Um, but yeah, it's that this, this hymn, you know, holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal one have mercy upon us. So, but what does that term trisagion mean? Well, the word for holy in Greek is agios or agia, if I'm, you know, agios, agia. So mm -hmm. we say holy God, holy, mighty, holy, mortal. We say holy three times, trisagion, the thrice yeah. holy. It literally yeah. means thrice holy. And it's for that very beloved hymn. Uh, this is sort of a new newcomer, you know, relatively to you know Anglican liturgy from the Eastern Church. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's beloved. You know, we, for example, the cathedral we use it during Lent. And yeah, things. it's a very, very powerful uh, song. Mm -hmm. 
Thrice holy, yeah. Like remember, Hagia Sophia means a holy, a holy wisdom with the great, the biggest church in Christendom, which yeah. is now sadly a mosque. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but it used to be the largest church in was ho uh, holy wisdom. Yeah, Christ yeah. being the wisdom of God. Hagia Sophia, holy wisdom. Well, leave it to the Eastern Church to make sure we're reminded of the whole Trinity. <laughs> oh yes, they of course again fought, and again fought harder than anyone <laughs> to make sure that uh, that is that is our theology. Um, so great. Well, uh, yeah, Father Stephen, I, I feel certain that this, these are not the only Greek terms that we need to know. Um, are, are there, we we're running out of time, but you know, are there any others that we need to maybe explore on future episodes? Well, we have explored the word paraclete from Paracletos in a, in a special episode, but there mm -hmm. are a lot of words that would, um, uh, parousia. Yeah. which is a Greek term for this. Actually, it means a being present. We translate it often as coming, second coming. But the Bible use, this is the Bible term, parousia, Christ yeah. being with us, being present, making himself present. Yeah. The yeah. kerygma, which mm -hmm. is sort of the, the basic, the, the core of the gospel message, the kerygma, mm -hmm. you know, uh, which is proclamation in Greek. Uh, kenosis. Remember it said Christ poured himself out, you know, for us. You know, he didn't consider being equal to God something. So we have the word kenosis. Logos has a richness as often lost. Translating the word logos as word misses so much of the power of that word to Greek. It's also where the word logical comes from in Greek. So it has to do with reason and things too. It's much more like the Hebrew term wisdom. It's kind of like the, the principle of intelligibility in yes. everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just communication. It's a much more powerful word. And agape. Oh, that's one I grew up with for sure. Yeah, yeah. We, we always emphasized agape love. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, there are terms like that that sometimes we should uh, we might explore some of the Greek terms that we run into in biblical studies. Yeah. Christ, uh, uh, for uh, uh, of course, martyr, you know, charism, yes. these things. So we've we've got our work cut out for us. Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. Anything uh, else you have for us on Greek uh, Greek terms? Um, are those are are Greek? Are we are we gonna you know as long as we have Christianity, we're gonna still keep seeing. Greek terms, right? Pop oh, up, it's yeah. part of a, it's uh, one of those things like we keep uh, using in English, keep using terms from French, right? Because there was a time when French was the language in England with right. after the Norman conquest. Yeah, so it's right. part of our history. And so we're going to literally, especially the Bible was in Greek. The yeah. earliest Christians, our greatest writings were in Greek yeah. in the Eastern church. It was the language that which Christianity spread. So we're always going to have a warm spot in our heart. And of course it's the language, again, the language of the scriptures. So we're always gonna have a warm spot in our heart for Greek. Yeah, yeah. But these are terms you'll really run into. If you start talking about these types of things, you're going to run into terms, you know, like this pericope and things, homily. Now you'll know more about those yeah. terms. Oh, pericope for sure. Impress your friends with, uh, with, with one easy Greek term. <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. Thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.